know, we were thinking about the Sex Pistols and the Dead Kennedys and all these bands with outrageous names. And so um, someone said, well, I think Alex said Dick Envy and the Penis or, you know, just really stupid things like that. And I said, well, look, let's just stop right now and call it the Clits. And everybody just was like, oh, my God, it's perfect. But Alex said, spell it with a K. And my sister Gail said, and end it with a Z. That's Marsha Clifton, the drummer and backup vocalist for the Clits, an all-female Memphis punk band that's been around since 1978. It started out uh, me and Lisa and Alex. We were kind of like a, a threesome. Now, they had already moved beyond the kind of the art tragedy of sister lovers. And Lisa had gone away to college and come back and a lot of things had happened. And um, so it was kind of me and Lisa and Alex just kind of hanging out all the time. And Gail had recently moved back to Memphis. And then she was like, oh, what's going on with Gail and Marsha and Alex? I want to be in on that. So then she came along. And then maybe two months later, by then it's the summer of 77, Amy moves back from college. And that's when Alex said, we're getting Amy in this band. And so that's when the foursome, we named ourselves, we got the boathouse to practice, and then things just started, started to happen. The Clits, spelled K-L-I-T-Z, are a piece of Memphis music history, but also a staple of its present. The band has been in various stages of reunion since 2005, and also includes the guitarist and vocalist Lisa Aldridge. I didn't know what I was doing, and my father died, and then my mother and my two younger brothers moved to Switzerland, I mean, my thing, France, Europe, and then Bangkok, Thailand. So uh, then the, the clits got together and it, at the time it felt like a great sense of purpose because I was involved in the music scene anyway. I mean, I knew all those people and it was really fun. Amy Starks, the bassist who joined them in 1979. I was not the original clit, no. I was in the 79 version. 79 so you... to um, 80. I was only mm -hmm. in there for a little bit over a year. You know, probably 14 or 15 months, so yeah. And Elise Clifton, referred to occasionally by her first name, Gail, who played the keys. The energy. Yeah, I mean, in the, the first rendition, we had so much damn energy. I mean, we were young. <laughs> we didn't care. Punk was new and fresh and we were rebelling and we had Alex hanging around with us and it just, we just, it was cool. I mean, punk was an attitude. The clits and their contributions to the Memphis punk scene are often overlooked by their connections to more famous men, such as Alex Chilton of the Box Tops and later Big Star and the legendary Memphis music producer, Jim Dickinson. This season of Beyond Beale is dedicated to telling the story of these four women, Marsha, Lisa, Elise, and Amy, and how they broke barriers in Memphis punk. This episode will discuss punk in Memphis, the beginnings of the clits, and how the South helped to shape a music scene more typically associated with big cities like New York, L.A., and London. Welcome to Beyond Beale Season 2. I'm your host, Emma Jane Hopper. The initial inception of the clips was helped along by Alex Chilton of Big Star, according to Marsha Clifton. And so it was just kind of a natural progression of our friendship and being around Alex. And, you know, it was just kind of really the luck of the draw, really. I mean, I feel like in hindsight, it took all four of us to be the clips, specifically, in fact. 
and uh, just being in, in that spot, you know, with Alex and Lisa and just kind of just the, the people around us. But while he helped make connections, the musical chemistry of the clits wasn't something dictated by Chilton. That's kind of how that's kind of how I see it. The clits were a product of their time in a punk culture in Memphis, but they were also a subversion of it, being one of the first all-female punk bands on the scene. Punk has female roots, though, according to Dr. Joy Fairfield, a media studies professor at Rhodes College. Dr. Fairfield considers Sister Rosetta Tharp, a queer, black, female musician popular in the 1930s and 1940s and from the South, to have been a progenitor of punk music due to her musical style. She played an electric guitar and she could make that electric guitar sing like really nobody had before. Um, she also infused it with an incredible um, sense of sensuality and um, sort of uh, like a resistance, a kind of like um, like luscious, chewy, um, embodied uh, resistance to a kind of mainstream status quo. And um, you know, played her instrument in a way that was sort of sensuous and empowered, which of course Elvis then stole. And then that became the beginning of rock and roll, which I think, you know, you can't think about punk without, you know, the electric guitar. And I definitely think Sister Rosetta Tharp sometimes doesn't get enough credit for uh, really being a, a forerunner to how that instrument could be used. Alicia Trout, a Memphis-based rock artist notably involved in the bands Lost Sounds and River City Tan Lines, also mentioned rock and roll's relationship to punk music. Memphis punk, I understand why it's called punk, but its roots are in rock and roll with like the song structure of the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, a catchy chorus phrase. And um, and then you add some sloppiness and some drunkenness and some whatever to it. And that's how it becomes punk, I guess. So much of what makes punk music punk is the attitude, according to Benny Carter, a drummer for Tab Falco's Panther Burns. The Panther Burns were a punk band on the scene during the same era as the original run of the Clits. The punk part to me has always been the attitude and again, uh, not feeling pressured to be conformed as a particular product of a city or anything like that. So for me, that's what it represented was punk was an attitude. The importance of attitude in the punk genre was echoed by Marsha Clifton. But what is punk? You know, I definitely think punk is just playing with attitude, you know? And it's not so much that you don't care, care, but you just, you know, it's just kind of, you're just putting it out there. You're just putting it out there. And by Lisa Aldridge. Yes, yeah, sound bad and act bad and the whole bad yards of things. The Memphis punk scene was centered around the storied Antenna Club, located at 1588 Madison Avenue. Amy Stark spoke to its history. The Antenna was originally the mousetrap. It was a biker bar. And they had murals in there that were very bizarre. Then it became the well, just country western place for days. I could strike, had a jukebox, drank beer, had a stage. Well, that's where Tad and Alex started playing, was at the well. Jackie, who was the owner of the well, her husband, they sold it to Jimmy Barker and Steve McGee, and it became the antenna. Amy wasn't the only member of the Clits with things to say about the venue. Jackie, and I don't remember her husband's name, but they loved uh, having young people come in. And so they kind of nurtured us. They didn't really care what the music was. They were just glad to have some business because I think they're, you know, they kind of not really had had uh, much success or if they'd had success, it had fallen off in the mid seventies. So when our new crowd of people started coming in, they were totally open to it. 
So that was a main, mainly where we played in 77 and 80. By the time the antenna rolled around, uh, we I think we might have actually been broken up by then and maybe had a couple of gigs of antenna. That was Marsha Clifton. Elise Clifton spoke fondly of the venue as well. They gave all the punk rockers a place to call home because there was no other place. I mean, they certainly weren't going to, you know, let us play at Lafayette's Music Room or any of these slicked up places like High Cotton or they had the more, you know, professional bands around town play. So the well became the punk rock haven and we would pack them. I remember one night we made $90 a piece and in 1978, that's a lot of money to get off the door. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I mean, I was like, wow, we packed the place. So then um, when the Jackie and her husband, they were the owners, I can't remember their last name, Marsha Mike, um, they wanted to sell it. Well, that's when it became the Antenna Club. And by then, uh, my first show there was Gail and the Joy Boys. All the clip shows were at the well. But we're the ones that made the place into a punk rock place that became the Antenna Club. Ross Johnson, another member of Tab Falco's Panther Burns, considered both iterations of the venue special. What I liked about the antenna was was that there was not any one dominant class of mythos society there. And that's one thing that I was really sick of in the late 70s was mythos society. And I learned a lot meeting people that I would not have met anywhere else except the well and the antenna was what made that place special. It was the people, and there were so many different scenes going on. Alicia Trout also spoke of the Antenna Club. Oh, well, yeah, I'd definitely say Antenna Club was a staple of Memphis punk, that's for sure. And it was stuff that you couldn't see or hear anywhere else. You know, there was exclusive stuff. And a lot of it was, you know, from New York club culture, uh, and stuff like that. This is Chris McCoy, whose award-winning documentary Antenna is about the venue. It's about the Antenna Club, which was the first uh, punk rock club in uh, Memphis, Uh, probably the first in Tennessee, depending on how you define it. Uh, Certainly the first one in Tennessee to be a purely, like to be founded to be a punk rock club. It's a big chunk of music that has been really ignored you know, since most music histories of, of Memphis, uh, rightly so, concentrate on uh, the 50s and 60s and 70s. The scene at the well and its evolution into the Antenna Club was a home for punk rockers who weren't necessarily welcome elsewhere. They just didn't have any place to go. Uh, and the Antenna provided a chunk of those people uh, a place to play. Ross Johnson said the more underground nature of Memphis punk allowed the artist more freedom. Yeah, we didn't, you know, we didn't have to be... Uh, punk rock in Memphis was different, really. I mean, it may have sounded a bit like, you know, L.A. or New York, or, uh, but it, it, it was not, you know, attitude-wise, it was, uh, you know, it, it was just had to be a different beast. The well antenna allowed us to feel unpressured because we were miles away from Beale Street and we were miles away from making money. Dr. Fairfield spoke to why places like L.A. and New York were considered originators of punk, despite its roots in the South. 
I think one of the reasons why there's this narrative that punk emerged from sort of, you know, either London or kind of downtown New York City, Greenwich Village, New York City, is because those places are considered taste-making places. So there are taste makers who go around to the underground clubs in taste-making cities and try to find what edgy stuff is happening at underground clubs. And then they grab it and they say, this is the next big thing. So the difference between the South was not that that wasn't happening here, but that those taste makers were not going around to our underground clubs and grabbing people from outside them. So I think that is a pretty big reason why it sometimes seems like art comes from the centers of sort of the colonial metropolis but it's not that it's that tastemakers with money and access exist in these metropolis. Dr. Fairfield has conducted interviews with and research on the clits along with our faculty advisor Dr. J. Tyler Fritz. They were assisted by Atara Anna Vitriva, a Rhodes alum who helped in part with filming and interviewing the clits. She said the DIY culture of southern music made punk music a natural addition to its musical heritage. I think that's part of why punk probably did take such a you know, strong foothold in certain areas of the South, not necessarily even just because there's a long history of a lot of people who aren't getting acknowledged by the broader popular cultural mainstream to some extent, but also because there is that musical tradition of, I'm going to find whatever makes a sound I like, and I'm going to use it to make a sound, and I'm going to put that sound along with the story I want to tell, and anyone who wants to listen can hear it. The four women of the clits, Lisa Aldridge, Amy Starks, and sisters Elise and Marsha Clifton, all have their own stories of how music and their band has impacted their lives. We'll talk more about them in our following episodes, but in this show we'll hear about their backgrounds and style. Here's Elise Clifton. Well, my story is I just grew up here and um, it's been around music all my life. You know, my parents bought us the Beatle records and the Elvis records and so just grew up on music. I was just always into music. And um, then my first career was being a hairdresser. And I did that. I went to beauty school when I got out of high school. I graduated and went to work in a shop. And that was about the time I started hanging out with Alex Chilton. And when he tells you, hey, you're a real musician, he wants to be a hairdresser anymore, right? <laughs> So he was the first person that ever pointed it out to me. Yes, you are a musician. And so from coming from him, I just, I kind of went with it. And I started writing poetry in high school. So it's like when you put two and two together, the poetry with the music, you know, it just made sense. Marsha Clifton said all of her pursuits have had something in common with punk rock. So I started out as theater, dropped out to be in the clips, then went back as a journalist which is what my bachelor's degree is in and my master's is in library. And so they really kind of all go together, even the theater and punk rock with, you know, little kids, because I don't care about acting crazy or foolish or just getting them excited about, you know, the printed page. Amy Starks grew up in a musical home. We always had a lot of, you know, show tunes or classical music. And then my dad actually bought me my first Beatle record and, there was great music here in Memphis uh, in the 60s, and I went to St. Mary's, so we listened to the radio every day. Uh, I did learn how to sing out there. We had a choir, but it was an Episcopal girls' school. We went to chapel every single day with chapel caps on. 
So I really got into music, and then um, my dad gave me his Garcia, and I started taking classical guitar, and just, you know, learning how to play guitar. All of the members of the Clits had an opinion about their association with punk. Elise Clifton said it reflected more on their musical ability. I mean, that's what made us punk is we never tuned our guitars. So we were off key. And that's why some of the one lyric, one uh, critic said we sounded like a wounded animal mixed with a, a broken washing machine. So between the not being in time and not being in tune. <laughs> <laughs> so see, if we weren't in tune, I wouldn't sing in tune. So it was just kind of a mixed bag. And Marsha Clifton considers the label more appropriate for some than for others. I think Lisa is not a punk rocker. I think that uh, Gail and I are the punk rockers. I think Lisa had uh, a certain delivery and style that made her look punk and act punk. But I think her music was much more... Um, melodic, or even more like the Roaches. Lisa was never a huge fan of their punk label, though she embraced the fashion of the punk scene, according to Amy Starks. You know, the Clips, uh, they were kind of glam. Uh, Lisa really embraced the punk lifestyle. When she cut her hair, she kind of, you know, became very militant. But she was strong, and um, I was kind of like a recovering punk rocker. My mother was thrilled. She didn't have a punk rocker. I mean, I was walking around. I had cut my hair black. I was like a bam bam hairdo, like a ponytail on top. I looked like pebbles. I looked like pebbles in the Flintstones. Torn up tights and leopard skin. Marsha Clifton also spoke to their style. I don't know what the term would be, but I think Lisa and I had had kind of an edgy punk punk look, and I'd say Gail and Amy had more of a glamorous look. Gail was always into fashion. At the end of the day, the Clits are considered a punk band. They played in the punk scene, were involved with punk artists, and they looked the part. How much of that was intentional and how much of it was due to the influence of the culture the musicians found themselves in is up for debate. Marsha Clifton attributes their label in part to their association with Alex Chilton and his involvement with the Cramps, a New York punk band, as a producer. I think we got labeled punk, and I know Lisa really hates that we got labeled punk. But I, I you know, I think, you know, Alex was was one of the forefathers of punk and he brings the cramps into town what else are we going to do but be that be that you know all-girl punk band and when we have songs like two chords and hard up i mean those are those are definitely punk. lisa aldridge didn't think the punk label encapsulated what she was trying to do but ultimately went with it we were trying to be a rock and roll band you know harmonic and beautiful and sound beautiful and to rock and roll like my idea of rock and roll I guess it was the 70s but I was thinking 60s right like the songs that we uh used to do like Ruby kind of love and uh I, I think that we didn't I think that we were we didn't play very well or sound very good and so we got labeled punk and so I thought well if that's the way it's going to be fine I can do that so that's what it turned into the legacy of the Clits is in part their independence and individuality despite the drawbacks of their origins. Their work and significance has been overshadowed due to their association with bigger names. Their musical genre was practically foisted upon them. But by exploring who the Clits are and what they've managed to achieve, this season of Beyond Beale will tell the story of four women who broke a Memphis punk glass ceiling and who've been making sure their voices are heard since 1978. 
We'll dive deeper into what the clits were to the Memphis punk scene in the late 70s and what they are today in our next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to Beyond Beale, the Mike Curb Institute's Memphis Music History Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then be sure to listen to the rest of our season and in-depth on the all-female Memphis punk band The Clits, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the interviewees featured in today's program. In order of appearance, Marcia Clifton, Lisa Aldridge, Amy Starks, Elise Clifton, Dr. Joy Fairfield, Alicia Trout, Benny Carter, Chris McCoy, Ross Johnson, and Atara Anavitriva. Today's episode was written and produced by myself with production and editing assistance from Sydney Sensing, Priscilla Foreman, Isabella Brewer, Kulan Erdenchemeg, and Kate Cunningham. Eli Matlock was also a producer. Dr. J. Tyler Fritz is our faculty advisor. The audio engineer for this episode was Lena Beach with assistance from Dee Wu and myself. The original music for today's program was created by Cam Napier. Thank you to Betsy John and Shalise Barzani for our cover art. I'm your host, Emma Jane Hopper. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.